Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said, Let us worship the triune God. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Almighty God, King of the universe, you reign over all things. You spoke and the world sprung into existence. You spoke and they were whatever you commanded. You uphold all things by the word of your power and therefore there is no grain of sand out of place, no hair unnumbered, no star unnamed. And what is man that you are mindful of him? What are we but dust and ashes in your sight? And yet you sent your son to be one of us, to stand for us, to live, to die, to rise for us, to be our king, to be our master, to be our savior, and you have poured his Holy Spirit out upon us, causing us to be born again to newness of life, giving us the power of his endless life and the power to obey you and serve you and praise you and proclaim your glory in all the earth. And so we worship you now, our Father, in the name of Jesus who lives and reigns with you and in the power and comfort of his Holy Spirit, world without end, and amen. One of the old dictums of the church is the Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of faith. Or you could say the way you worship and pray impacts how and what you believe. While it is true that believing in Christ drives you to worship him, it is also true that as you worship Christ, you are educating your faith, discipling your faith, feeding your faith. How we worship the Lord here informs how we will think and live and act out there. This is why we have wanted to cultivate a culture of joyful solemnity in our worship. And this really is something that takes work, practice, prayer, and attention. We do not want our worship to be stuffy, fussy, or pretentious. The Bible is clear. We are to enter into God's presence with joy and thanksgiving. But the Bible is also clear that we may not enter into God's presence in a casual manner, flippantly or thoughtlessly. We are to draw near to the Lord with reverence and awe and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. This is what we mean by a joyful solemnity. And all of this is to encourage you to keep working at this with your people. Give thought to what you wear and how you prepare for worship. Many of you already do this, but maybe some of you have not given it much thought. We have no interest in dress codes or lists of rules, but remember that we are meeting with the king of the universe. So put on your Sunday best, whatever that may be, and not because you think you can impress him or for the praise of man, but simply as an act of faith. And remember what sort of occasion this is. It's common in some churches to sip a latte while watching the Sunday sermon, and then we wonder why the church is so weak. Latte worship produces a latte faith. 
and nothing against lattes. Remember, by faith, we are ascending into the heavenly places to worship the king, to be fed by his word and at his table, and to be commissioned as his holy armies. We are not here to be entertained, even if we are worshiping in a theater or a gym. The law of worship is the law of faith. So come in faith and come and worship your king. As we prepare to confess our sins together, please turn to Come Down, O Love Divine, on page 278. Amen. So if you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Father, we confess that we frequently sin against you by fearing man more than we fear you. Not only that, but we also sin because we love the praise of man more than the praise of you. We speak when we should be silent and we are silent when we should speak. We get angry, we envy, we lust, we worry because we do not fix our eyes on you. We dress for the world, for ourselves, rather than seeking what you consider goodness and beauty. We spend our time studying things not because you made them in order to know you more, but because of what people might think, in order to be considered cool or intelligent or sophisticated. Father, forgive us for coming before you casually, thoughtlessly or presumptuously, for thinking you are impressed with our nice clothes, or for thinking we are better than other people because we're so casual and free-spirited. Forgive us for thinking that you will hear us because our liturgy is better than the church down the street. Father, teach us wisdom. Teach us the fear of the Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us so that we might walk with you every day and draw near to you with your people every Lord's day in spirit and in truth. Teach us the simplicity of faith that simply looks to you and isn't afraid of anything or anyone and simply obeys. We know our culture is so self-centered and fearful because we in the church have not been salt in life. So we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Colossians 1 says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jesus reconciled you to God in the body of his flesh 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. Not only that, but he paid the full price that he might present you to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Therefore, on the basis of this gospel, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Psalm 104. These are the words of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a, flame of, a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment, the waters stood above the mountains. 
At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they may turn not, turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run, run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. Where the birds make their nests, as for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun knoweth his going down. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey, and seek their meat from God. The sun ariseth, they gather themselves together, and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work, and to his labor, until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all, the earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships, there is that Leviathan, whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. That, uh, that thou givest them they gather, thou openest thy hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, face they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest, sendest forth thy spirit, and they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh upon the earth, and it trembleth. He toucheth the hills, and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. Our Father in God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this song. We thank you for this hymn. I pray that your spirit would work in us so that we understand it more fully. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In this psalm, among many other truths, we see that the Holy Spirit of God is the one who gives all forms of life. In verse 30 it says, Thou sendest forth thy spirit. Thou sendest forth thy spirit. They are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. This is an appropriate psalm, an appropriate text for Pentecost Sunday. In the Nicene Creed, which we just recited today, we confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. He is the giver of life the first time. He is the giver of physical life, which is mysterious enough. And he is also the giver of spiritual life when we are quickened, when we are renewed, when we are born again. In the, in the scripture reading this morning, we heard Ezekiel's vision of the valley full of dry bones. And the dry bones said to God, we want to be dead. We want to stay dead. We want to stay dead. And the Holy Spirit said to them, that's too bad. All right? Bones have nothing to say about the matter. When the Spirit brooded over the, the face of the deep, when the Spirit brooded over the chaos prior to the creation week, 
The chaos said we want to remain chaos, and that's too bad. Nothing didn't want to become something, and that was too bad. God is sovereign over life. God is life itself, and God is the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, and our nation, steeped in death as it is, does not want, does not desire to be quickened, does not want to be made alive. And once again, that's too bad. He is the one, the Spirit is the one who brooded over the face of the first, over the face of the deep at the first creation, and he is the one who was poured out upon the first residence of the new creation at Pentecost. He is the giver of life and the giver of new life. He gives life because God has nothing ultimately to give except himself, and he is life. So when God gives, he doesn't give things instead of giving himself the way we sometimes do. We sometimes give gifts as extortion payments. Here's your present, now leave me alone. I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of, uh, I'm going to give you something that costs a little bit of money, and the deal is you give me something that costs a little bit of money, and then we have a truce. We, we're, we can go our separate ways. Christians don't give birthday gifts that way. They don't give Christmas gifts that way. Christians give gifts as tokens of giving themselves because we're imitating God. God has ultimately nothing to give but himself, and consequently, since he is life itself, he can give nothing but life. Well, that's what he does. That's, that's what he does because that's who he is. He gives life because he is life itself. And in this psalm, we are invited to exult in the related truths of creation and a detailed sovereign providence. This, uh, this psalm is all about the created order, and it's all about God's sovereignty over it, and because God is sovereign over it, of necessity, things come to life, things are quickened. So let's consider the psalm. The psalmist summons up all his internal resources to bless the Lord. He says Every, everything that is in him wants to bless the Lord. He, the Lord, the one he is blessing, is great and honored and majestic. Verse 1. Jehovah puts on light itself as if it were a coat, and all of the starry heavens are no more than a curtain to him. Verse 2. He puts on light itself as though it were a coat, and the starry heavens are no more than a curtain to him. Think of the curtain of a royal pavilion. Don't think of a little tiny curtain in, you know, in the little your breakfast nook. This is the curtain of a royal pavilion. God uh, just can pull aside all of the starry heavens like they were a curtain. His beams are set in the waters above. The clouds are his chariot, and he walks on the wind, verse 3. His angels are both wind and fire, verse 4. He sets the deep, he sets the deep footings of the earth, and he makes them immovable. Verse 5, he covered the earth with an ocean cloak, covering even the mountains. Verse 6, this is not a reference to the flood. I don't believe, I believe this is a reference to the deep prior to, it, it, during creation week. The, the entire earth was covered with water and he covers it and then he establishes the dry land. But then he rebukes the waters and they retreated to their proper place. Verses 7 and 8, he then set the beach for a boundary between the sea and the dry land. Verse 9, God is the one who sets springs in the valleys of the hills. Verse 10, he sets springs in the valleys of the hills. And he does this in order to quench the thirsts of beasts 
and to supply the birds that sing, to supply the birds that sing with a place to live as the trees grow, and the hills that need watering. Verse 13. So all this is quite remarkable. It's particularly remarkable if you uh, have ever uh, driven from here to the Pacific Ocean, drive across uh, Washington or Oregon, and you drive through scores of miles, hundreds of miles of dry and desolate land, just scrub everywhere, virtually nothing. And then all of a sudden you come upon the Columbia River and there's this enormous amount of water flowing down to the sea. And you wonder yourself, you ought to wonder yourself, where did that come from? I don't see, I don't see little trickles coming down from anywhere. It's just dry and desolate. And, and yet all of a sudden, here's this enormous amount of water. God is the one who established the springs. God is the one who establishes all the little creeks and all the little brooks and all the little um, tributaries. He, he's the one who does that. And he does that because he cares about the critters that are out there. He, he does that because he's taking care of the animals. He does this so that cattle might have grass and so that men might have herbs. Verse 14. God's intention is for men to have wine for the heart, oil for the face, and bread for the heart again. Verse 15. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, which is referring to the, uh, the rosinous cedars, enormous, giant, gigantic trees, and all of them full of sap, which is drawn from the water in the ground, which God gives. This passage may be reapplied by you the next time you get an overly sentimental birthday card from a pious aunt. The trees of the Lord are indeed full of sap. <laughs> Pretty rosinous. <laughs> Jehovah grows trees so that the birds might have a place to live. Verse 17, the high hills are for the goats and the cliffs are for rock badgers. Rock badgers would be the King James says conies. The, the, the cliffs are for the rock badgers. God wants um, animals to be living in out-of-the-way places. The moon marks the seasons, and the sun knows what to do. Verse 19, God made the nighttime, and the, noc the nocturnal beasts come out at nighttime. Verse 20, young lions trust in God for their meat. Young lions trust in God for their meat. Verse 21, if you're ever in a position where you hear a lion roar, you can say, just think of a, an animal asking for dinner. It's a prayer. The sun comes up and they all go back to their dens, verse 22, while men get up and go to their tasks, verse 23. So all the nocturnal beasts come out at night, they go about their ways, they gather food, they do whatever they do at night, then they all go back to their dens, the sun comes up and we get up and go to work. The earth is crammed full of God's riches, verse 24. Look at the ocean, which has innumerable creatures in it, innumerable creatures in it, verse 25. There are ships on the surface of that ocean, dotted here and there, and Leviathan is in the deeps, just horsing around down there. Verse 26, and that's what the song, the, God made the ocean for Leviathan to play in. God wants enormous creatures to fool around. What's their purpose? To fool around. Sometimes they, you know, like a whale will jump, it will breach and come out of the water and splash down. That was fun. <laughs> and God did it so that it would be fun. So they all look to God. What is, um, so God is doing this. God is blessing everyone. When it's time for dinner, they all look to God, verse 27. 
They are blessed because God gives to all with an open hand. Verse 28. The world is full of food. All right? If, if it's out there, somebody's probably eating it. All right? if, it's, if it's growing, if it's there, if it's available, it's good for somebody. And God, God has just filled the earth with food, with food, and all these creatures are blessed that way. If God turns away from them, they are unsettled. If God removes their breath from them, they return to dust. Verse 29. If God sends out His Spirit, those creatures come to life. This is obviously physical life. And this is a type, it's an image, it's a picture of the spiritual life that we have in Christ, also given by the Holy Spirit. God renews the face of the earth. Verse 30. So the glory of God... The glory of God is constant, and God rejoices in His own creative work. He likes what He has done. We see this in the creation week. God says it is good. He, he does a particular thing, and then He says it is good. He does something else, and He says it's good. It's very good. He, God likes this world. God likes the created order. He loves the created order, and He loves all the hedgehogs. He made the hedgehogs. He made the badgers. He made the wolverines. He made the sharks. He made these creatures, and he loves them. He likes what he has done. If he just looks at the earth, so solid to us, it shakes and trembles, and if he touches the mountains, they smoke, verse 32. All he has to do is touch it, and it goes up in smoke. This requires music from us. As we see this, as we view this as we comprehend what's going on, we need to sing about it. We need to sing about the, uh, the small creatures, and we need to sing about the big ones. We need to sing about the fact that God feeds them. We need to sing about the, the fact that God cares for them. He makes trees for the birds. This requires music for us, and this is one particular song that's dedicated to that theme. And it's required from us as long as we live. Verse 33, our meditation of him shall be sweet, and we will be glad in it. Verse 34. Deal with the wicked, Lord, and soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 35. At the very end, when he says deal with the wicked, what's that doing at the end of this psalm of praise? Deal with the people who would deny all this. Lord, deal with the people who would look at this glorious creation and, and assert soberly, with, and not, expecting not to be laughed at, they would assert that all of this happened by itself. All of this is just a chance collect collection of atoms. And this it's enough to make a cat laugh. You have, what, what's, what is blindless, purposeless uh, evolution like? What is that kind of Darwinism like? It's like standing at the foot of a 5,000-foot staircase, a long, long, long staircase, and you've gotten your hands a big Lego set, right? And you trip at the bottom of the stairs, and when you fall and all the Legos go everywhere, they tumble up the stairs, all the way up the stairs, assembling themselves into an iPhone as they go. And then when you walk up the stairs, you, oh, there's an iPhone. Look what just happened all by itself. That's what it's like. And, and we're going to see a little bit later, you might say, that's kind of far-fetched. No, I'm low-balling it, right? That, that I'm, I'm giving you a very simple and, re, and relatively plausible scenario. 
This is a creation poem, and Christians need to begin with creation. The Septuagint credits this psalm to David, and we don't have a good reason for disputing it, really. We simply would um, attribute it to David. What we basically have here is a creative uh, and poetic retelling of the creation of the world. The psalmist begins by singing of the light and the firmament, verses 1 through 6, which is what was created the first and second days of creation. He, start, he starts by singing about the light and the firmament, the first six verses. He then moves on to the separation of land and sea, the formation of creeks and rivers, the spread of vegetation, which is all appropriate for the third day, that'd be verses 7 through 18. The fourth day is celebrated by his song of the sun and moon, verses 19 through 23. In verses 24 through 30, he talks about the creatures that were created on the fifth and the sixth day. The crowning achievement of the sixth day, the creation of man, is represented not by a particular verse in the psalm, but by the fact that there is a psalmist. All right, so, so there's someone singing. The, the, the pinnacle of creation, the creation of man, is seen in the fact that there's a psalmist singing about this. And then we can see the Sabbath rest in the final words in verses 31 through 35. Now, I want you to note something important. We're going to get, um, when Paul talks about the law, and he says, the, uh, the law that says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the corn, Paul says rhetorically, is it oxen that God's concerned about? The answer is yes, but. It's not no. It's the, the answer is not God does not care what happens to the oxen. That's not the answer. The, the answer is, is it oxen God's concerned about? Yes, but there's much more. There's a principle involved, and Paul extracts that principle and applies it to the, um, the support of someone who makes his living through the preaching of the gospel. It's the same way here. Are animals important to God? The answer is yes. Now, we draw, we draw a lesson from that, we can draw principles from that, and we can see that there's an escalating importance that goes beyond the animals, but we don't ever want to say animals are unimportant. We don't ever want to say that. Jesus says, Jesus argues, and the, the way of uh, argument is called a fortiori, uh, how, mu uh, how much more argument. Jesus says, uh, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. God cares about the sparrows. God cares about the little birds. And if he cares about the little birds, how much more will he care about you? That's, that's the argument. But don't minimize, don't minimize God's care for these creatures. So note something important. Even though all of creation is ultimately for the glory of God, and underneath that glory, the, it is for the dominion of man, God gave the earth to us to steward it, to oversee it, to manage it. God gave it to us. It's, it's our, we, we own it. We have the authority to meddle with it. We have the authority to meddle with it in wisdom, but we have the authority to meddle with it. We are given dominion over the creatures. We are give, given dominion over this world. So the glory of God, the ultimate end is the glory of God. Secondarily, it's the dominion of man exercised to the glory of God. But God does many things for the sake of the beasts and the sea creatures themselves. God does countless things for the sake of beasts and sea creatures themselves. How many beasts have lived and died, given every meal by God himself, without ever coming into contact with man at all? Their lives are not pointless. They give glory to God. 
So you could have generations of hedgehogs living in some hedge, out-of-the-way out hedge, generation after generation, giving glory to God, and they don't even know that men exist. They don't even know that we're a thing. And they give glory to God, and God supplies their needs. God cares for them. And so consequently, we need to be good stewards. We need to care for them as well. Now, is one of the things we see in this psalm is how praise itemizes. Praise itemizes. This psalm, just like the previous one, just like 103, is a praise sandwich. We see it in verse 1 and verse 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, at the, tail, at, at the tail end of the psalm. So we have one piece of bread, another piece of bread. Then you have all the meat of the sandwich in between those two praise the Lord's or bless the Lord's. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So he begins and ends with an invitation to himself to bless God and to do so with everything that he's got. It's got to be a thick piece of bread, right? It's got to be a good, hefty piece of bread. He's got to do it with everything he's got. And then what does he do in between? What does he do in between? The whole psalm is a mass of particular details. Leviathan and lions and birds and herbs. And, you know, he's itemizing particular things. And what this should show us is that since the mentioned details only encompass less than 1% of what could have been said, right? when he starts to itemize animals, all right, does he... Does he even, does he get anywhere close? No. This has only got 35, verse, 35 verses in it. There are over 300,000 species of beetles. Not over 300,000 beetles. Over 300,000 species of beetle. Just the beetle. All right, so um, does, does this psalm cover, uh, <laughs> cover it? It doesn't even begin to cover it. So what he's, what he's inviting us to do is by naming particular things, he's inviting us to learn how to name particular things that we run into. So they, these details that he gives us are representative of the entire created order. The cosmos is beyond enormous. All right? The cosmos is beyond enormous, and when God painted it, he didn't use a roller or a sprayer. God painted the whole thing as, a, uh, as a, uh, an infinitely wise miniaturist with the smallest of brushes. The, God, God goes down into the details. The details go down to the subatomic level. We can look at anything else in the entire created order. We can make a list of all sorts of things not mentioned in this psalm sea lions and hummingbirds say, and we will see the same exquisite attention to detail. Whether we are talking about subatomic realities or the starry nebulae, God placed every atom right where it is. God knows the current position and velocity of every electron right where it is. He doesn't know it because he finds it out. He knows everything immediately. And God, the, what and he knows, he knows what he is speaking. This is because God, infinitely wise, knows what he is doing. This world is created by him, but it wasn't created him by, by him the way the deists say, the way a clockmaker makes a clock, winds it up, and then walks away. God did not walk away from what he had made. The Bible teaches that God creates and sustains. 
So God created the world, and he upholds it by the word of his power. God created it in the first place, and if God stopped speaking at any moment, the whole thing would disappear back into nothingness. It is created and sustained every moment by him, by his creative living word. So God is sovereign in the details. God is sovereign down to every hair on your head. God is sovereign down to every bird in the backyard, down to every beetle, down to every bacteria. God is sovereign over all of it, and he delights in all of it. So we've been invited by this psalm, I think, not to say, oh, you know, lions, check, Leviathan, check. Let's bless the Lord for those things. That's that's a short list, 10 or so. And so then we can be done and go about our business. No, we are being invited into a life of wide-eyed wonder. Did you know that whales and dolphins sleep one half of their brains at a time? We go to sleep, we just, you know, when you go to sleep, you just conk out. When a whale goes to sleep, it's half of him that's asleep. Half the brain goes to sleep, and the other half enables him to swim around. And then, when that uh, brain's got enough shut-eye, the other half goes to sleep. The one half wakes up, I got, I had it, you got it, all right. And did you know that some birds do the same thing? Some birds are able to sleep half a brain at a time. And did you know that they, they'll do this, uh, little sentry birds? You have a row of birds on a, on a branch sleeping. All the ones in the middle are sleeping out. They're, they're out. And then the two sentry birds on either end, the inside half of their brain is asleep and the outside half of their brain is awake. And it took evolution a long time to figure this out. <laughs> they, had, they had to do all kinds of things. <laughs> like I said, the cat laughs. All right, so, and then, not only that, but the sentry birds on the outside, when, they, when the inside part of the brain has got enough shut-eye, they switch, and the birds switch ends. Okay, and then they switch ends, and then, that's so if a predator comes, the bird on the end is, uh, is awake or half awake and can... Uh, can set up the alarm and everybody gets away. Did you know, here's another one. Did you know that one strand of your DNA unwound would be about two meters long? In one cell, one strand of your DNA that's inside one cell would be about two meters long. And because you have trillions, not, not millions, not billions, but you have trillions of cells in your body, with each cell containing one of those strands, if you put all of them end to end, the resultant library, these are not just strings, each one of them is a library right, that has all the information that, that um, tells, the, tells the body how to manufacture you. you know? So the library, each one strand is a library. If you put all of these libraries, trillions of libraries, end to end, it would stretch to about twice the diameter of the solar system. Right? That's what we're that's what we're talking about. Now, I'll confess to you that I've got, you know, if I've got a 20-foot extension cord. And I am incapable of rolling it up and putting it in the garage for the winter without it getting hopelessly tangled in the sp- by the springtime. I I put this 20-foot extension cord in there and I set it on the shelf, nice round coils. I come back in May because I need to do something and it's all snarled. 
That's 20 feet of a thick cord. Twice the diameter of the solar system. And you're not, <laughs> you're not being wheelchaired in here because, because your DNA is all snarled. During an eclipse, have you ever wondered why the moon fits right over the top of the sun like you were stacking a couple of quarters? And that both of those objects are supposed to be the detritus in the aftermath of a huge explosion? You know, kabam! And they're swirling around. And then the two great objects in our sky, they just fit perfectly. Did you know that some fish are best described as little brown jobs? You know, what kind of fish is that? Well, that's a little brown job. Well, other exotic fish look like they're auditioning for the role as the empress of all the fan dancers in Vegas. <laughs> who thought that was a good idea? Right? Who, who came up with that? Who's in charge of this place? Well, the answer is Jehovah. Jehovah has a sense of humor. Jehovah thinks it's fun and funny. Jehovah thinks it's kind. Jehovah is having a good time with the world. The thing that keeps us from having a good time with the world is our sin, is our self-absorption. The fact that we're not looking at the world as, a, as the gift that it is from our Father. The issue is one of glory. When the Darwinists seek to explain the world around us, a world that is just crawling with life, we must never forget that they are engaged in a flight from glory. They're engaged in a flight from glory. They're running away from glory. God is very great. He is clothed, as it says at the beginning of this psalm, with honor and majesty. And the devotees of a blind purposelessness do not want to give him that glory. God glorifies himself in what he has done. Everything God does glorifies him. And when we deny that he has glorified himself in what he has done, by denying that he is the one that has done it, we are trying to rob him of his glory. What does it say in Romans chapter 1, verse 21? They refused, unbelie the unbelieving man refused to glorify God or to give him thanks. They refused to glorify God and they refused to be grateful. Those are the two things that are the driving engine of atheism. The driving engine of unbelief and atheism are a refusal to glorify and a refusal to express thanks, which incidentally is what our principal answer ought to be. All right? Now, I, I, I'm a firm believer in biblical Christian apologetics. I believe that we should study and have an answer. But our principal answers to the unbelieving world, our principal answer to the Darwinists, our principal answer to the atheists and the evolutionists should be, Worship and gratitude. Those are, the, those are the heart of our answer. We need to be doing what they're refusing to do. We need to be exhibiting what they don't want exhibited. They don't want God to be glorified, so we need to be glorifying God. They don't want God to be thanked, so we need to be thanking God. So, the reason they don't want to give God glory, and this is the, ultimately the way it works, the reason they don't want to give God glory is because they want to take it for themselves. People don't want to give God glory because they want glory for themselves. But this is like the moon saying, I don't want the sun to get, uh, get all the privilege of shining light. I'm going to go off 
I'm going to go off into another uh, corner of the cosmos and shine my own light. Well, the, a moon has no light of its own to shine. The moon is reflective. We do have glory. Man, uh, mankind is, we are created in the image of God. And woman is the image and glory of man. All right, so we are, we are constituted to, be, to, to image God and to image his glory, among other things. We're built that way. But in order to, to image and reflect the glory of God, we have to be in fellowship with him. We have to be near him. We have to, we have, to have his glory shining upon us so that we might reflect it. And the way we reflect it is by worshiping him through Christ and by thanking him for all he has done for us through Christ. So wanting to take glory for ourselves is to sin. And to sin is to do what? Well, all have sinned, Paul says in Romans, and fallen short of the glory. Sinning is to fall short of glory. And this is what we have done. We have, we have plunged ourselves into the deepest absurdities possible. We have plunged ourselves into this, this um, uh, world in which everything says, you, you, you're reading through a book on some remarkable, you know, how blood clots or how animals sleep or how humans sleep or how this came to pass or how that came to pass. And every last one of them is, is marvelous. It's marvelous engineering. It's marvelous artistry. It's glorious. And, and someone, you, you look at this sunset that is what, majestic, glorious, mind-boggling, and, you, and you're standing next to someone who says, yeah, that's just uh, gases moving around. That's just, not, that's just a bunch of nothing. Nobody did it. Why, why do you say nobody did it? Because if you acknowledge that somebody did it, you would feel immediately the obligation to thank him for it, and you don't want to. You don't want to thank him for it. Because you know what? As soon as you thank him for the sunset, as soon as, as, soon as you glorify him for that sunset, you're gonna, you realize, I just acknowledge that he's kind of there. You know, I thanked him. I glorified him. But he's there later on today when I'm going to go buy my drugs. Or he's, late, he's, there, he's still there. He's not just there in the sunset. He's still there when I want to go sleep with my girlfriend. He's still there when I want to go finish that, uh, that dishonest business deal that I was involved in. He's still there when I want to pass progressive legislation that will allow us to continue to slaughter the baby. He's still there. See, I can't thank him for the smallest thing without letting him in. And that's why I, I can't be committed to be partial. I can't be committed to being partially blind. I have to be blind. I have to be blind all the way down. I have to be blind front to back. I have to live in the outer darkness. And this leads us straight to gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one thing, there's only one thing that can undo this blindness. For God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What happens in conversion is the same sort of thing that happened at the creation of the world. For God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. What God did at, in creation week is the same kind of thing that he did at Pentecost. At the first Pentecost, what was God doing? 
He was commanding light to shine out of darkness. He was commanding the dry bones of dead Israel to assemble together, and then he was going to breathe his spirit into them, and then Israel is alive. And look at you here today. You still are alive. You still are the new Israel. It's, and it's the spirit that quickens you. It's the spirit that brings you to that place. And so consequently, if you've come here as a non-believer, or if you believe, you know, I, I see this life that you're talking about in others, but I don't see it myself, what do I do? You turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, the Scripture says, you and your household. So this is the invitation. This is the declaration. This is the proclamation. The gospel cannot be separated from the doctrine of creation. The, the gospel, the, the, the proclamation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you may be quickened, you may be recreated, you may be made new, rests upon the doctrine of creation in the first place. You are his creature. And as a sinner, you are a rebellious creature. And if you want to be remade, fashioned back into a friend of God, you have to do it on his terms. You have to, you have to submit to what he declares. And this is it. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life among us so that he could be a new Adam, the new head of a new human race. Jesus not only lived a perfect life so that the new human race could get off on the right foot, but he also lived a perfect life so that he would be a perfect sacrifice so that he could die for all the sins of the old race. So he died on the cross so that every tawdry thing you've ever thought, said, or done could be placed on him and nailed to the cross in him so that when he died, you died. And when he was buried, you were buried. And when he rose again from the dead, you rose again from the dead so that you could walk in newness of life, so that the Holy Spirit could indwell you, so that the, the reality of Pentecost could be ultimately, finally, and completely ours. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for this, um, this glorious message. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the Spirit who quickens the gospel to us. Father, we pray that you would teach us more. And John 20 says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said these words when he appeared to the disciples gathered in the upper room on the first Easter Sunday. It was 50 days later on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would be poured out with power. But here, Jesus comforts the disciples and assures them that he is in fact alive. And even after most of them had run away in despair at the crucifixion, Jesus actually commissions them back to service for him. Today is Pentecost Sunday, the day we remember Jesus pouring out his spirit on the Christian church, and Jesus still meets with his people wherever they gather in his name, just as he promised, he is here in our midst. And he still ministers his peace, his comfort, and assures us that he is alive. He still breathes his spirit on his people and commissions them, and recommissions them to his service. But notice this, he meets with disciples who have failed. He meets with disciples who have been cowardly, with disciples who have become afraid, with disciples in hiding, with disciples who have doubted. 
In short, Jesus meets with his people who need his peace, who need his spirit. So has your heart been troubled this week? Have you been overwhelmed? Have you become angry, worried? Have you given in to sin? Have you stumbled? Then this table is for you. You qualify. This meal is not your reward for being good. This meal proclaims grace for those who are not good. This meal is the peace of Christ purchased for the guilty by his precious blood. Are you guilty? Then come, you qualify. This meal is for you. And this is what Jesus says to you as you come in faith. He says, peace to you. As my Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus assures you that he has made peace by his blood. Your sins are forgiven. You are washed whiter than snow. And he sends you back out into the world, just as he, he was sent into the world by the Father. He sends you back to work. He sends you back to your families. He sends you back to fight sin again this week. And he sends you with his peace, with his comfort, with his spirit. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation, all of creation, has been subjected to bondage because of our sin. We know that creation is cursed and comes under the curse. But it is looking forward in eager expectation to the redemption of the sons of men. As God renews us, as God quickens men, creation is being set free again to be what it was always meant to be. And another way to think about all of this is that creation is on our side. All of creation is on our side. The butterflies are on our side. The whales are on our side. The hedgehogs are on our side. All because they're on God's side. And since they're on God's side, they're on our side. And so all the crazy Darwinists are completely outnumbered. <laughs> My assignment to you this week is to go home and give God thanks for something you've never thanked him for before. Find something. Just find something. Something on the sidewalk. Something in the fridge something at the dinner table, and just thank God for that specifically. That's your assignment. That's your charge. Give God thanks for something this week that you've never thanked him for before. And go now with the blessing of your God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. And amen.